trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mason President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, our graduates, and higher education. My guest today believes that personal stories are at the heart and soul of public history, and he has made a career of making those stories available and accessible to the public, and he's done this on the nation's largest stages. Dr. Spencer Crew, a Robinson professor of U.S. history at George Mason, worked for 20 years at the National Museum of American History, including nine as its director, becoming the youngest and first African-American to head a major Smithsonian museum. From July 2019 to September 2020, Dr. Crew was the interim director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. For six years, he served as president of the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Dr. Crew, with a PhD in history from Rutgers University, has written extensively on African American and public history, is an emeritus member of the board of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and a member of the revolutionary 250th Commission. In a time in which history, racially, culturally, and politically, is unfolding rapidly and in ways never seen before. I cannot wait to hear about his work, which is at the intersection of museums and social justice. Dr. Crew, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's start with the notion I mentioned in the introduction. You have been at the intersection of museums and social justice. Can museums truly move the needle on social justice issues? I think what museums can do in the area of social justice is, first of all, to make sure those issues continue to stay in the forefront of the thought process of the nation and of our visitors so they understand what's going on around them, what are the issues connected to them, and allow them to begin to really analyze these things and to figure out what role they can play or how they can think about these issues. So we can move the needle in terms of, I think, higher knowledge for our visitors, but I think in the end, the needle moves because individuals make choices to make Make a difference. So when you think about this whole construct, you actually think about what are museums at all, right? So a museum in its perfect operation, doing exactly what it was intended to do, would do what, in your opinion? There's two things that museums should do. One is their task is to try to capture the essence of the culture and the environment in which they exist. Especially at history museums, the idea is to make sure that within our collections and our holdings, we have artifacts and objects that help remind future generations of what happened before them. But I think also we have an educational task, and that educational task is, in in fact, to share information with our visitors, to alert them to different ways of interpreting the environment in which they live, and encourage them to think critically and thoughtfully about things that are happening around them, and how they can make their own lives useful in ways that they find appropriate in their own lives. You've said that the mission of museums is to bring a value to the communities in which they exist, right? Yes. And you kind of emphasize that here as well. 
Do you think museums do a good job at this? How well or poorly do museums do in generally in representing the people in their communities? Well, I think it really depends on each museum and their orientation, their board, their leadership, and how seriously they take their position in the community. I think there are many museums who are working very hard to have relevance in the locations where they are seated to make sure that the exhibitions they do, the programs they create, the conversations that they promote as part of their work really are of usefulness to the local community and really looks at issues that community is concerned about. But I can't say that's consistent. I think that it varies it from place to place. And from my point of view, those who are doing the best are those who are really working hard to make that connection and to make sure that what they do resonates for the people who live near them. I see here in your history that you spent time at the Underground Railroad Museum. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that. What was that one all about, and what did you achieve in the end? Okay. The real focus of that museum was to look at a period in history when the Underground Railroad was in operation. And what is sort of critical about understanding that operation is, first of all, that it is one of the earliest activist movements in the history of this nation, plus it's one of the first interracial activist movements in the history of this nation. And what it looks at is the institution of enslavement, how it fits or doesn't fit with the Constitution and how people as citizens should react to that anomaly and what can you do to make a difference. And what you have with the Underground Railroad are, first of all, enslaved people who decide that enslavement is something they want to actively escape and to make that effort to escape despite the dangers that go with it. And others of a variety of backgrounds, races, points of view, who are willing to be supportive of that effort on their part to gain their freedom. And I think what most scholars have come to believe after a while is that the activities of the Underground Railroad were one of the elements that helped to institute the creation of the Civil War and finally brought it into slavery because what you do is have individuals who are saying that slavery does not fit with the meaning of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. And as a consequence, we as citizens have a responsibility to try to get the nation back on the right track. And that means opposing the institution of slavery and taking what steps we think are important to undermine that institution so that, therefore, it will sort of fall from its own weight eventually. And that's in part what happens with the Underground Railroad activists and those who decide to escape enslavement is that they are able to create a different mindset within the nation that is one of the aspects that influenced the outburst of the Civil War. Let's dive into this just a little bit. Sure. By definition, the Underground Railroad was a clandestine organization. It was structured in essence to be secretive, right? Well, not entirely. Well, it depended on where you were. Now, if you were in the South, you were very careful about not exposing yourself. I think in different communities throughout the North, it really depended upon the people around you because there are people who are very obvious about their involvement in the Underground Railroad. Thomas Garrett in Delaware, William Still in Philadelphia, and Levi Coffin in Ohio are all very public about their support of the Underground Railroad, in part because they feel that in the surrounding community, they're not in jeopardy's way. So that I think what is the part of it that is more secretive is that there are a wide variety of people who are part of it, some who do it for long periods of time, and some who don't do it other times. But what you have to be careful about is protecting those who are escaping enslavement and making sure that they are not exposed and That's therefore right. recaptured. So that part of it has to be careful. That part of it had to be secret, right? That part had to be secretive. 
obviously, if the slave owners knew the whereabouts, the operations, and the tactics of the progenitors of the Underground Railroad, they would surely be caught. Yes, I think that it's a real possibility. But on the other hand, I think that those individuals operated in a way to make sure that the slave owners who came couldn't capture them in that process. No, I get it. I yeah, get it. Okay. And so those particular components had to be clandestine. They had to be secretive. Yeah, well, so yes, carefully planned and thoughtfully executed. Well, that kind of moves me to my question. How do you pull then the artifacts of that framework? core components of this was trying. They were trying to be at least not public, right? Right. So how do you get the artifacts Mm -hmm. of an entity that, in its own definition, was trying to be a secretive framework? Yeah, well, I think part of it is keep in mind that with the start of the Civil War and the end of the Civil War, that Underground Railroad no longer has to exist. And I think those individuals who had been actively involved in it prior to that time now are more public about their involvement. They also are writing biographies, autobiographies, and books about their involvement in the Underground Railroad. And some of the more celebrated people, like Harry Tubman and others, have biographies written about them. So what we're able to do is to piece together from those different sources of information things that we want to try to capture or put into our collections that help to speak to that story. And sometimes it's hard artifacts, sometimes it's images, sometimes it's actually just collecting the stories through oral histories to make sure that what happened is not lost to future generations. Let me skip around a little bit Mm -hmm. here. You talk about museums as a way to document and to highlight specific components of our history. Yes. Beyond that, beyond that teaching and highlighting, do you see them as being tools, instruments, so to speak, for social justice and inclusion? Yeah, I think they very well can be, and I think there are quite a few museums that are moving in that direction. So how do you rethink that role that they currently have? I don't think it's a rethinking of the role. I think it's an evolution in terms of the role that you play in society, that at different times, the expectations and the impact you can have vary. And certainly now when social justice is so front stage, it's important for museums to also be part of that conversation, to provide insights and ways of looking at these issues so that people continue to wrestle with them. And I think part of the task is to make sure that it doesn't become yesterday's news, because what we know is that movements that take place in the society can disappear overnight as they move on to new things. And I think around social justice, one of the things that museums can do is, again, through their programming and other things, continue to make sure that these issues are not lost and that they remain a focal point of conversations until we get to the stage where we feel like there's been real shift in the way the nation looks at and responds to these kinds of issues. As we move forward on these issues, let me give you an example. Can you see a George Floyd exhibit at the Smithsonian? I could. I will say that what I know is going to happen at the African American Museum is that there's going to be an exhibit on Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. And there's possibly going to be an exhibit that includes Trayvon Martin in it. The idea is to make sure, one, that you capture artifacts and objects that are connected to these key individuals so that, again, their story is not lost. And these exhibitions, again, raise with them questions that we want visitors to struggle with and think through and understand what it means in the society at the moment. Uh, in a history museum, how it reflects change or lack of change over time. And then to think about, so now that you have this information, what do you do with it going forward? 
do you let it just sit there and become something a relic of history or do you as an individual try to find ways in which the society moves forward in ways that make this less of the norm and more of the unusual aspect of how the society functions so should museums strive to be presenters or facts specifically or should they be conversation facilitators thereby highlighting on a given issue multiple sides of that issue, if if that makes any sense. It does, but I don't think they are separate things. I think that in presenting the facts, you're sort of putting in front of people the various ways of understanding and looking at the issue. And then by presenting the facts, you're hoping to, to generate conversations. The conversations can happen on the floor of the exhibition. I mean, one of the interesting things about museums is you have a wide variety of people coming into it and looking at these exhibitions. And there's often very great conversations that happen on the floor of the exhibitions between people who don't even know each other but are seeing these things and thinking about them out loud and then interacting with one another. So that's one place in which those conversations can unfold. The other place is through specific kinds of programs that you create in which you bring together people from different points of views to express their thoughts and then to have a conversation with the audience about how they are interpreting that information and what thoughts they have around it. Those are the ways in which you continue to generate the thoughtful process for those who are connected to the activity that hopefully allows them to really engage with it in ways that make a difference for them and make a difference hopefully for the society. This is the part where I want to dive a little bit more, because I, I actually think this is an area where museums can continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. They tend to highlight factual information. Mm-hmm. They move away from opinion. They generally tend to represent one side, or mm-hmm. they paint a picture one way, right? Do you see museums gravitating or moving towards this construct that's more in alignment with the social discourse of our day? Or do you see them as arbiters of here is the sacred truth? You see, I'm getting at something here because fundamentally the arguments and the issues that we are dealing with in our society today, in my opinion, revolve around your worldview. Two people can see an event. Right. And based on their worldview, have a very, very different interpretation of what actually happened in that event because they see the world differently, right? You Mm -hmm. take what happened in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Now, how does a museum display that? Because factually, there are some things that happen, Mm -hmm. but the way people interpret those events really have a lot to do with your political persuasion, right? Right. I guess what I'm getting at here is should museums try to stay in the middle, just highlight the facts, or should they also delve into this area of truth? I I don't believe that truth and facts are necessarily the same because truth, at least truth nowadays, truth is subjective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that is the challenge for museums. One, you always have staffs that have different points of view. So is there a, a singular way that your entire museum, all those, all those involved in the exhibition, see the things the same way? And I think also, uh, as institutions in society, what you want to make sure is that you continue to be seen as a reliable source of information for people to go to. 
And I think that puts you a little bit more in the let's present the information in perspective. I think most museums have a slight bias one way or the other, depending on where you are. I mean, our preference would be a bias that is much more leaning to the left. There are other places that have a bias that lean more to the right. And I think it really depends on what is the construct of that museum, that museum staff, the museum board and the leadership and how far they're willing to lean one way or the other or they're trying to really provide that source of information with different perspectives that allow people to begin to navigate the information themselves. I know that in the field there's a lot of argument for it's important to provide the information and let visitors begin to bring their own perspective to bear on it. Uh, In your programming, again, you're trying to give them lots of different ways of thinking about it, but in the end, you can't dictate how people are going to interpret things. What you can do is try to set them up in ways that make them see them in less biased kinds of ways and really have to deal with the essence of what's taking place in a real straightforward manner. But I have the sense you would like them to take a very strong stand and point of view. And I think that's always a very challenging place to be as a public institution. No, I don't necessarily want them to take a stand, but I do want them to be the framework for where stands can be taken. How is that different from providing the data Ah, of variety of perspectives? All right. So one way this can happen Mm -hmm. is you provide the factual pieces of what happened. Sure. Agreed. On January 6th, a group of individuals did enter the Capitol illegally. Correct. Correct. They did burst through police barricades in order to get into the Capitol. We know that as a fact. Yeah. But then there can be panels or displays on why it happened, Mm -hmm. right, Right. or what it meant. Mm -hmm. And those panels or displays can show multiple viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And then there can be an interactive component where you ask people who come to the museum to give their feedback, to give their level of engagement. And somehow that is curated and kept Mm -hmm. on hand either for others to see or to be used in a way to contribute to the actual exhibit itself, right? Okay. And that in a way the museums become more of a facilitator of discussion because you're going beyond the facts is what I'm saying. But why do you think they don't do that already? Hmm. How do I say this? They do that to a certain degree. They present the facts, and if you agree with the facts, you see the facts and you move on. But they tend to give you the what and not necessarily the why. I I guess I am confused. Okay. Because I'm not sure what museums you've been visiting. (laughs) Well, because the the ones that I've been connected with and I've been working with, especially right here in Washington, D.C., if you look at the American History Museum, you look at the American Indian Museum, you look at the Museum of African American History and Culture, even if you look at the Natural History Museum, they don't just sort of leave the facts and let them sit there. They really challenge people to think about what those facts mean. And I think that's more the norm for museums than not the norm. Okay. This is one in which we will continue to discuss. That'd be great. I have to take you down and give you a tour. I'd love it. I'd love it. Okay. So we're not long away from the United States electing its first black president. Mm -hmm. And now we have a black woman, Mm -hmm. uh, Kamala Harris, as Mm -hmm. vice president. Mm -hmm. These are clearly historical markers, both of them. How should they be portrayed in history, and, and what are your impressions of these historical markers? Well, I see them as important steps along the way. 
but steps along the way that still has to be, uh, I think, uh, brought to culmination, that there's lots more that needs to be done. What I think it's important for people to do is to certainly celebrate the achievements of those individuals and what it means in terms of new steps forward for the nation. But I also believe that we don't want to get too euphoric about it and see it as sort of now we've reached the promised land. I think what it says is that there's much more work to be done. And we also know that when they get into office, they then become targets for other kinds of things. I mean, we just read some things recently about the Secret Service woman who was protecting Michelle Obama and just how difficult that was and how mean-spirited people could be towards her in this position. And I think we're seeing some of that now at Kamala Harris in terms of some of the unsourced reports about uh, issues that are taking place. So that I think they are good moments in time and things that we should enjoy and celebrate for that moment, but to understand that they don't mark a seed change in how this nation functions and how some people continue to want to hold on to a different past and a different way of the world operating. So this is a great point. This harkens back to the discussion that we were having before. I, mm-hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly. How do you capture that in the museum? The, you- the notion of what you just said, not the historical marker, we both agree, mm-hmm. but that was followed with a discussion that said, okay, this doesn't mean we've reached the heights that the markers themselves seem to indicate. How is that encapsulated in a museum? One of the things you want to keep in mind is that there are various components that are connected to a museum besides just exhibitions. Okay. And I think one is the programmatic approach, and that what Ah, you do is you have a series of programs, either online now, which they're, they're doing a lot more of, or in person, in which you really encourage those kind of conversations and, and those kind of perspectives. And very often I think programs can be much more focused and opinionated sometimes in exhibitions because uh, who you bring in allows them to sort of speak about how they see the world and how they see things unfolding. And those programs can be wonderful exchanges, especially if you're bringing people with different points of view for the audience, because now you're hearing different ways of looking at things, and the audience can respond back and it becomes sort of a give and take back and forth. And when you leave, I think hopefully the idea is that you leave enriched and you leave thinking about what just happened in much more exciting and thoughtful kinds of ways. There's also a way for museums to tell a story that's within a story, mm-hmm. right? So we saw outcomes like Georgia's elections yeah. this year, mm-hmm. and you saw another set of historical markers, right? Mm-hmm. At least as it relates to the senators, Georgia, right. quote unquote, turned blue. Mm-hmm. If you look in the aftermath of that, what happened to the voters' rights laws and what's happening there directly after this election, you have to ask yourself the question about, is that really changing attitudes or is it the changing demographics or is it both? For me, it's the demographic change that's really critical. As the voter look changes, that you've had smart people who have said, this is changing, we need to mobilize these individuals and have people in office who reflect the kinds of things that they want to have happen. And I think in Georgia and other places, they were very smart about that. It's very smart about getting people out and voting. Now we're watching, as you've said, the repercussions to that. Mm-hmm. And you're watching those who are still in power, in, in political power, trying to find ways to blunt that. 
I was in a conversation the other day, and what someone was saying is that as a politician, you have a couple of choices. If you see things changing, you can do a couple of things. One is you can change your platform and change your point of view so that you are reflecting what the majority of people in the area where you live and represent are speaking about. Or you can find ways to deprive them of the right to vote. And what's happened is that in a number of places, they've said, we're not going to change how we see the world, but we're going to undercut who can vote so that we can stay in power. And I think that's been an ongoing story in this nation for years and years and years, and we're watching it happen again. My hope is that people will find strategies that are unexpected that will blunt those efforts. But it's a reminder that it is a long, difficult road, and it's never, ever done that people are always trying to find new ways to deprive others of their right as democratic citizens. And that's, I think, a very sad commentary on the political system of the nation. You know, interesting what you've just said here. You're an historian. You've looked at history. Mm -hmm. And what you are basically telling me is that We've seen this before. I assume right. you're talking about Reconstruction, right? Sure. So, you, so after Reconstruction, you had people go out and try to utilize the Constitution as it was written mm -hmm. in terms of voting. And mm -hmm. as a voting context, there were more black people in the South. Right. Which meant that if you just use that straight voting framework, the representatives would be black, right? Well, that's what happened. And that's what happened during Reconstruction, right. right? Right. And so... You saw a set of law changes come into place mm -hmm. to change that. So you saw a, a realization of a demographic shift, mm -hmm. and then you saw a change in laws to nullify that demographic shift. Correct. And you saw the individuals who were the victims of that change really powerless to do anything about it. Correct. Here's the point. Do you see that happening now? Because the individuals who are the victims of that change that's happening now mm -hmm. seem to me to be almost as powerless as the individuals were during Reconstruction. So why would we expect a different outcome? Great question, and I think there's sort of a variety of levels to it. At one level, what I very much agree with you with is one of the reasons that there was an inability to create change is because the courts were not sympathetic to the issues of voter protection. Oh, well, they're sympathetic now. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I, I forgot. <laughs> right. And we're, that's right. And we're in the same place again, <laughs> and that, that makes you very concerned. Uh, but, uh, but I think one of the things that is different is the last election, for the presidential election, that demographic impact was very clear. And I think, at least in Washington, in the White House, you have someone who clearly understands that more so than anyone did during the time period earlier. So the hope is that some things will change. Although, again, you have a problem in the Senate, at least. And then, again, you have people digging in their heels and not wanting to endorse change. What I'll be interested to see is how, in Georgia and other places, as these new laws are put in place, I think there's some very smart people down there who will figure out, all right, you're going to go this way. We can find ways to work our way around it. Because in the end, the demographic numbers are pretty strong. And the question is, how do you mobilize them and create change? And I'm, I would agree with you, it's not going to be simple. My relatives say I'm a pragmatic optimist. And so I'm going to try to be pragmatically optimistic that there will be ways that people will find to work through this and to counteract it. But it's going to be a challenge. You're absolutely right about that. So as you look through history, whom do you believe represents the most important marker for black history, right? We just talked about you had 
President Obama being elected. You now have Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. right? There's been great achievements throughout our history. Mm -hmm. In your opinion as a historian, what is the most important, up to this point, what is the most important marker? Boy, you ask hard questions. I have a bias. I really have been, imp I was impressed. I've just done a biography of Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. And what has struck me is that the 30 or so years that he was the lawyer for the NAACP was a critical period in terms of forward motion for this nation and for people of color. Because over the course of the 30s and 40s and into the 50s, they were, one, shifting the rulings coming out of the Supreme Court so that more and more there was a willingness to see transgressions against African Americans as actually not for the Constitution. And slowly but surely began to do things like voting laws changed, the, the uh, white primary in Texas, getting housing discrimination changed, getting school discrimination changed, a whole variety of things that really create a foundation that allows sort of King to spring forth and generate this civil rights movement that has a court now that has been shifted to be supportive of the things that they want to have happen, despite the fact you have places all over the South and other others, and even the North, Chicago and other places, where they don't want the change to happen. Oh, I get it. So, so part of it is how do you shift the landscape so that the possibility of change has a higher likelihood than it did before. So my bias, given I just did that work on Marshall, I'm, I'm a high, high believer in his work. I mean, I also think highly of W.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells. There are a number of folks who, along the way, I think, were sort of tireless opponents to, uh, to the roadblocks put in front of people of color in this nation. And so you would put all of those markers, I just want to make sure I'm clear here, okay. above the election of Barack Obama as president, above the crossing of the color line of Jackie Robinson in baseball. You would put those entities above the last two. <laughs> I would say that their work was foundational for the other things that you've described. Because most of the other things you describe happen in the 40s and the 50s and afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it is the work of these other individuals continually pushing the nation in a direction of greater uh, so where I want to use willingness to consider these things that it might have been otherwise. If Jackie Robinson had come around in the 1890s, it wasn't going to happen. So what is it that's changing in the background or the foundation that makes this next step possible? And I think the same, you can say things thing about Obama. You know, what was also important is that African Americans could vote in large numbers and in different states across the country, and their vote helps as well. If you're not allowed to vote, then he doesn't get elected. I agree to that. Talk to me a little bit about, from a historical perspective, how do you see the Black Lives Matters movement and the current push for racial and social justice? Well, first of all, I see it as important and critical, and I see it as a continuation of the efforts by African Americans to serve as, I'd say, as the conscience of this nation, to remind it of what it's supposed to stand for and what it needs to do to get closer to those uh, ideals and those professed ways of operating. So I, I see it as an important movement for this nation to keep it thinking about what it can be and not what it is going forward. And I think the pushes that continue to challenge how we teach history, what we're talking to our students about in schools, how we're getting the nation to confront some of its shortcomings is an important 
push that needs to continue to go forward. Because as we said earlier, we're not at uh, Nirvana yet. And there's lots of work to be done in the hopes of someday, somewhere along the line, getting there. Interesting. Interesting. I heard a conversation that you had with Claiborne Carson. Mm-hmm. He was a professor emeritus mm-hmm. of history at Stanford, and he was director of the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute. Yes. One of the things Dr. Carson said, and it was really interesting, I just want, to, want you to comment on it. Until we understand the missed possibilities of American history, we might miss this possibility. What do you think he meant by that? Hmm. That's an interesting quote. Uh, my guess is, is that part of what I think uh, he said prior to that or after that is that he was reflecting on his own youth in the southwestern part of the United States and how complicated race issues were there because it wasn't just about people, African-Americans, but also Latinxes and others in, in that conversation. Also, he talked about the poor whites. Part of what I think he's talking about is the nexus of connections that exist there that we really got to figure out how do we leverage those possibilities mm-hmm. for the greater good of the country because right now I think the strategy that a lot of oppositional people have is how do we keep folks apart? How do we highlight the things that make them see differences as significant as opposed to beginning to see where are the commonalities that if you actually follow those pathways can make a huge difference and raise a whole group of people at the same time as opposed to crabs in a barrel where one's pulling the other one down because they're worried that they won't get theirs. The rage right now in America, the thing that it's probably amongst the highest level of debate revolves around critical race theory. Yep. Depending on who you are and your political view, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. you see political race theory very, very differently. And let me take a little bit of time here just to make sure that everyone listening mm-hmm. understands the context of critical race theory and what it means. Because oftentimes we learn an issue based on a pundit's interpretation of that issue as opposed to what that entity was originally put in place to do and what it was grounded for. So I'll provide a definition. You can tell me if it meets your standard and then correct me in any way you see fit here. Sure. Critical race theory, as I view it, is really an academic concept. It's more than 40 Mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. And the core idea is that race is a social construct Mm -hmm. and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also embedded in legal systems and in policies. Mm -hmm. Its basic tenets emerged out of a legal frameworks and legal analysis. Mm -hmm. And so legal scholars put the initial foundational bricks in place, people like Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado and the like, But it expanded from there. Mm -hmm. Even people here at Mason, like uh, Hazel McPherson, Mm -hmm. and I assume that you knew Hazel, she was one of the scholars of critical race theory and put some of the foundational bricks, especially understanding people of color in the diaspora Mm -hmm. outside of Africa. And so not just in America, but also in Latin America and and, and in the world. Mm -hmm. Is that in alignment with your view? Yeah, it's in alignment with my understanding of the way that the academic and scholarly community would define it. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure it is the way that those who are raising 
Octane and school boards and others are defining it. I think they are seeing it in a slightly different way that somehow we're trying to, I mean, I've heard this phrase before, we're trying to make white people feel guilty. Yeah, what I've heard is that it. Some people see that you see it as a divisive discourse that pits people of color against right. white people. Right. In all honesty, I get why some will say that because it's dealing with certain truths, things that have happened to people of color. There is a separation between you and I mm-hmm. because your people experience that at the hands of my people, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where the challenges for me begin mm-hmm. because you can't have a reconciliation and understanding of one another that's not on the basis of truth, right? I agree entirely, and that's what's so frustrating about this whole conversation that they're having around critical race theory. Why is there a reluctance to look at things clearly and honestly and then figure out where do you go from there, as opposed to saying, well, we can't talk about that because it's going to make me feel bad or feel guilty or say something bad about my ancestors. We need to sort of embrace that and move forward and figure out, so what do we do differently and better? so that all of us sort of benefit in the long run. But it sort of goes back to, I think, a long time ago when John Hope Franklin was asked to create a commission on race by uh, Clinton Mm -hmm. and have an honest conversation about race. It just couldn't happen because people didn't want to have an honest conversation about race. And I think we're still in that place where people don't want to look at that squarely and honestly and then use it as a platform for forward movement as opposed to feeling somehow that you're under attack for things that have happened in the past and continue to happen today that we need to recognize and fix. Understood. Understood. One more hot button issue, and then I promise I'll... <laughs> you give me a softball with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then I'll throw you, I'll throw you a couple of, you know, a couple of softball ones. Uh, talk, to me, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about this whole context of the removal of Confederate statues. Mm-hmm. We're in Virginia. I contend to you that Virginia is probably ground zero mm-hmm. for Confederate statue erection in the whole country. And given that we saw a large number of statues, not just down Confederate Row in Richmond, right, but right. we saw a large number of statues all over the state, doing the state houses and in the courts all over come down. Just give me your take on the public discourse and on the issue of whether the statue should be removed or not. Sure. Well, I, I think the discourse has to do with what those statues represent and how they impact the perspective of important parts of the population. For me, especially as a historian, part of it is understanding how and when the statues were created. I mean, there's one side that argues they were created as a part of the remembrance of the Civil War and the heritage. But when you really stop and begin to investigate when these statues are created, they're really created during the early part of the 20th century when African-Americans were under attack and pushing back, and this is a way of sort of reminding them of their place, and even more so during the 1950s in the Civil Rights Movement as a way of, again, saying we are not going to allow change to take place, and these people represent that old way of life that we want to keep alive. So I think if you understand the history of it, you can understand why it is bothersome and I think painful for important parts of the population. The other part for me is that a lot of these statues are in very public governmental spaces that are actually paid for by taxpayers 
And I think taxpayers who have the right to say, I don't want to have to confront this every time I go to City Hall or every time I go to this public institutional location, because it really gives off the wrong impression and the wrong, I think, think a sense of, are you going to get justice? I mean, you go into a building that has Robert E. Lee in the front of it, who was the slaveholder, and you're a person of color. you got to wonder, is justice really going to be fair, or is it going to represent a past time? So given that, my point of view in this sort of complicated set of issues is that I sort of believe that these kind of statues that are on publicly owned land should not be there. Now, what you might want to do with them is take them and put them in another location where they can be given a context and historical perspective and even, even talk about what the different ways that people see that. But it needs to be in a place where people go to consciously to engage in that conversation and not places where they have to confront them casually when they really don't want to have that conversation or deal with what they represent. So I am uh, supportive of the idea of removing those statues and just finding new places for them to be because I'm also a person who believes that you don't want to destroy history because you do that, it gets forgotten sometimes. And also then it gets manipulated to be interpreted in a way so that it's not accurate to its real meaning. So we need to make sure we don't lose that as we go into the future, but that we don't make it the confrontational thing that it is in public spaces as it is now. Hmm. Good answer. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> so along those lines, the Juneteenth holiday, I, mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was pleasantly surprised. I thought, the, yeah. I thought the country did a great job with our first official Juneteenth, mm-hmm. though some of us have been celebrating it for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when I reflect how much strife there was in the country in adopting Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a national holiday. I I remember there were a Mm -hmm. significant number of states that said they would not do it, Mm -hmm. Arizona being the biggest one, right? Mm -hmm. There were performers who basically stopped performing until that holiday was enacted. That was a fight. Mm -hmm. Juneteenth wasn't any of that. The vote in the Senate was just overwhelming. Yeah. And in this Senate, exactly, <laughs> which I exactly, find, exactly. which I found to be incredibly perplexing, but also I was very grateful as well. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about Juneteenth, its importance to the black community, and talk to me about the evolution. Where, where, where do you think it's going from here, and, right. and, and, and how did it get to this point? Right. First of all, I have to tell you that June 19th is my wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. So, so we were excited that they were going to celebrate our wedding anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> but historically, Juneteenth has to do with the arrival of the news of emancipation to Texas. The news doesn't get there till long after it has been issued in the Emancipation Proclamation, and it's in June 19th of that year that it finally arrives there. So it signifies the arrival of freedom in the farthest reaches of the nation and in recognition that slavery no longer can exist and those who are enslaved are now free to be treated as citizens, hopefully, in in the nation. The 19th has been celebrated in many communities for a long, long time. And it was sort of interesting to watch it sort of blossom and really begin to have significance in a wider variety of places across the country. And then to actually have it become a holiday in the Senate was an interesting, I think, surprise and a a happy one. I'm not sure exactly what it represents in terms of overall politics. I hope it illustrates sort of a a shift, but I'm a little bit too pessimistic to believe that I think it may have been one of those, you know, sometimes you you toss, toss people a little something 
to say we're not as bad as you say we are. I'm just not, not quite clear yet what it signifies because I haven't seen any major change in the attitude in politics in Washington after that. So it just may be a momentary blip that was, I think, fortunate to have it happen. I would trade that for a number of other things to happen instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I could trade that for the Supreme Court ruling against these voting suppression laws, I'd do the trade in a minute. So it's a nice moment in time, but there's a lot more things going on that also need attention and they need to be impacted. No, I, I get it. I get it. Your understanding of this and your response, it's not just interesting. It's a, it's a sobering response to what we know of the holiday. Yeah. As I wrap up here, I want you to talk a little bit about your time as interim director of the Museum of African American History. I, too, see that also as one of these landmarks, one of these times in our history that we can call a historical marker. Can you talk a little bit about it and mm-hmm. how it came to being and, and your part in it? Sure. The way that it happened was that the then director of the museum, Lonnie Bunch, mm-hmm. who had been the founding director and the guiding light for its creation from its very beginning, became the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in charge of the whole institution and all the museums that are underneath that rubric. And he and I have been colleagues and friends since the 1980s and have worked together on a variety of projects, exhibitions and collaborations. And so we know each other quite well. And when he was finally elected as the secretary, he asked me if I would serve as the interim as they did a national search to try to find a permanent long-term director. I was flattered. I'd been affiliated with the museum since about 2010 because I'd been working on one of the history exhibitions, the permanent history exhibitions in the museum. So I had been involved with the museum in a variety of ways for a long, long time. Also, uh, a number of the people on the staff that he had hired are people that I had known for years at the Smithsonian and other contexts. So I think what made sense was that uh, asking me to do that allowed a transition to take place that wouldn't be overly disruptive for the museum. That I was a known entity to a lot of people, uh, a long-time known entity to quite a few people. I had been a director before in the Smithsonian, so I had a sense of how it operated, although it evolves over time. And the idea was, I think, to hopefully provide a smooth transition for the museum as Lonnie left and as exhibitions came online and new issues had to be sorted out as you transition what we talked about a lot was helping the museum go from a startup to what we would call day one and day one is how do you operate on an ongoing basis what are the activities the the, uh, guidelines the rules and principles that you have to have in place in order to continue to operate consistently going into the future so I think my goal was to help make that transition to allow the museum to sort of get from the frenzy of of trying to get started and essentially they created I think 10, 12 exhibitions simultaneously for the opening of the museum in 2015 to now how do we operate on a day-to-day basis and how do we take some of the stress off the staff and the craziness that went into the opening itself. So I was, as I said, I was very flattered to be asked to do that. For me, it was a very, very uplifting period of time. Had a chance to work with really wonderful people. I was constantly struck by the quality, the dedication, 
and uh, the hard work of, the, of that staff and how much they believed in what the museum stood for. And that was a pretty special, wonderful thing to be a part of. And I was glad to have the chance to do that. And I'm excited for the things that the new director that they brought on board will do going forward because I think it's important to have those new ideas, those new points of view brought into and guide the museum into the future. So as we depart, do you see this moving towards a time where this will just be seen as American history, just kind of woven into the fabric of what it means to catalog the happenings and the events of our country? I think it is a ways off. I think it is getting better. For example, I think just as we were talking about the critical race theory kerfuffle, it says to me that that continues to be a a bumping point for the nation. Because if you accept African-American history as an integral part of American history, you have to accept the fact that the nation isn't perfect, that there have been great things that have happened, but there's some things that aren't so wonderful that have, have happened that we really need to think about and figure out what it meant what impact it had on those who were involved in it, and what do you do in the aftermath of that to make things work in a much more effective kind of fashion. I think we have a ways to go to get there. I'm hopeful that someday it may happen, but I don't think it's around the corner. All I can say to you is thank you for being here at the forefront of history, education, and culture. This is an honor for me to spend this time with you and be able to talk to you about this, to be able to ask all of these kinds of questions, because you've been at the forefront of this for quite some time. Well, thank you. I'm glad we had a chance to talk, and I have to say I'm also thrilled to be here at Mason. I think it's a terrific place at which to be an educator and a chance to really have an impact on students who will be the leaders going forward. Well, that's going to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Dr. Spencer Crew, Robinson Professor of History at George Mason, for his time and insights. I'm Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.